Welcome to The Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Uh, so for today's episode, I heard this story about one of our students here on campus who um, was so open about a topic that's so often stigmatized, which is mental illness. And he's open to the point where he suffers from bipolar disorder. And not only does he tell people that he suffers from bipolar disorder, but he does presentations on it and he holds public speaking events. And we've had episodes in the past where we've talked about the stigma associated with mental illness and how hard that is to overcome and the idea that we could have a conversation with him where he could not only share his experiences, but show other people that somebody's suffering from a disorder that's often seen as completely debilitating and kind of ostracizing from society as a whole can result in a kid who's going to become a doctor one day um, and can speak so well on what he suffered through and how he turned that into uh, really a benefit for himself and his future patients was an opportunity that we didn't want to miss. Um, so without further ado, here is our episode with Logan Noon. Check, check, check. All right, that's a little better, yeah. Okay. And you want yours quieter? Maybe a little bit. Check, check, check. Okay. Because I'm works. also super okay. loud, so I know if I'm hearing it loud, I'll just <laughs> yell more. <laughs> That's what I mean. Everyone in our classes and stuff, we have mics and stuff, and they're like, "Bro, you don't even need to use the mic. Like, you can just chill. Like, you do not need to yell into the microphone." You're already <laughs> amplified. Yeah, I think I might win the award for loudest in the class of 2021. That's for sure. Uh, awesome. Well, we're ready to go whenever you guys are. All right, so cool. we're recording. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This yeah. is sweet. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm trying to flip through my notes here because I have been since we came up with this idea way back at the golf tournament. Yeah. I've been taking notes here yeah. and there, and I ended up with way too much. Oh, no, that's I cool, man. That <laughs> I have no plans today, so however long you want to keep me here, man. <laughs> yeah. So I was hoping to just start it with um, a conversation on the, the little presentation that you gave for the class and just talking about your experiences. And if you could, uh, anybody who's listening right now, I imagine most of them don't have a concept of what you've experienced as far as this conversation today um so if you could start there and then we could probably dig into a million different places and go through all these pages as we move through the process yeah for sure man so i guess we'll just kind of start off from my desire to even be here so you know i didn't want to be a medical student until probably the age of about 22 because that's when i was diagnosed with bipolar disorder mm. that was really the first time i've had to use the medical system in any significant capacity and that was really when I was in the psych ward. And, you know, we'll definitely get into the details of all that, but it wasn't the best experience. Mm. So immediately after that, I was like, man, like there's some improvements that could be made here for sure. Yeah. But at first I, I didn't really know how to do that. And I didn't, I knew I wanted to work in mental health in some capacity, but I didn't know if that was going to be a therapist or a doctor or an advocate, you know, work at a nonprofit. I wasn't really sure, but that's, really was my deep desire to go to medical school was I want to improve this system around us that you know saved my life but so many lives around me aren't saved and yeah. there's such a 
you know, people are unwilling to use the medical or mental health system. And even when they do use the mental health system, sometimes they struggle to seek any improvement. Uh, they're put on medications that sometimes have worse side effects than they even started out with. So it's just really, really hard. Mm -hmm. So I guess just kind of getting into the grit of the story now, you know, I grew up in Connecticut and I really had like a per picture perfect family, you know, two parents still married to this day, a sister that I love and get along with. She's real cool. Um, I played sports in high school. I had friends, mm -hmm. uh, you know, girlfriends. I was a pretty normal guy. So I like to always say like from a Facebook perspective, you know, I was living the dream, you know, I, was, I was, had friends, I was a happy guy, but it wasn't until I studied abroad at University of St. Andrews in Scotland where I started to experience significant mental health issues. And when I first got there, it was, I thought it was just sort of a jet lag thing because mm -hmm. I just couldn't sleep. I, I just would lay there and I was taking, sleeping weird hours of the day from like 11 a.m. to 3 and I, I just couldn't get in sync with the, you know, uh, actual rhythm of the day over there. But that jet lag and that insomnia just continued to compound to get worse and worse. And it just got to the point where I was sleeping like two hours every single night. And then I was starting to have really bad anxiety just about sleeping where, mm -hmm. ooh, you know, like, am I going to sleep tonight? You know, I, I hope mm -hmm. I sleep tonight. And then when you have that anxiety, you just get all wound up and it keeps you up even, even later. Mm -hmm. And so I'd always play those games like, okay, if I fall asleep at this moment, I have to wake up at eight tomorrow, I'll get four hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. But you never fall asleep like right at that moment. <laughs> right, because so your brain just, keeps going. <laughs> oh, dude, it was terrible. So it just kept getting worse and worse. But then that anxiety kind of crept into so many other aspects of my life. So I was worrying irrationally more about just insomnia and like, whether my friends liked me, whether I was still a cool person. Uh, you know, I thought my girlfriend didn't love me anymore at the time. My family didn't even love me anymore. It just started to spiral out of control. Mm -hmm. And so when I was having that significant anxiety, it's just, I was getting so depressed and I would just isolate myself in my room all the time. And really that's when I started to turn towards alcohol to sort of meditate some of that pain, medicate some of that pain. Mm -hmm. And so I was using whiskey just to kind of fall asleep every night, like four or five shots, just kind of go myself to sleep. And, you know, in reality, it did sort of help with the sleep, but mm -hmm. it was a short-term solution, mm -hmm. Yeah. you know, because over the long term, it just, it just continues to get worse. And really my depression, I, when I was around my friends, I could kind of pull myself out of it. And I don't know if any of my friends really could notice what was going on, but when I was around my friends, I would still feel happy and feel like, you know, normal Logan. But when I was back in that isolation, it was just awful, just really, really terrible. So these feelings kind of continued throughout my junior and senior year of college, even when I returned back from uh, St. Andrews. But once I got back to, uh, I graduated from Holy Cross out in Worcester, Mass. Mm -hmm. Me and my girlfriend at the time broke up, and that was really a tough event. You know, that was my first significant real relationship in my life. But all of a sudden after that breakup, I started to feel euphoric. Mm. And just, you know, oh, you know, now I'm happy. It, it was, I, I was sad because of this girlfriend thing. Mm. And I was trying to put all the blame on that. And it was during my graduation week of my undergrad. And so I kind of fit along with everyone else in that euphoric feeling the first couple days because yeah. everyone's partying, you know, it's the end of school, just going nuts. All our friends and family are in town just celebrating. And so it was fine, really, that first couple days of my manic episode. But, and I don't even know really if at that point anyone noticed that it was manic, 
But that first night, I did not sleep a lick, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. just at all. I tried to, but I remember just laying there, just feeling so good. And, you know, I know a lot of our listeners are medical students or, you know, pre-medical students. And I was actually explaining this to someone else that when I got into medical school, you know, I felt amazing. And you just feel like the greatest person on earth, like you accomplished so much, you're so proud of yourself and your mind's just racing a million miles an hour. That's sort of what, like what that manic episode felt like mm -hmm. at first. Yeah. But it really didn't have any substance. I was just happy and I felt like the man for no reason. Mm -hmm. And that was really day one. And by, by, by about day two or three, that's when stuff kind of started to get weird. I was starting to have all these like grandiose thoughts that I thought I could come up with this amazing invention or a website in a day. I thought I could develop some new Facebook. You know, I thought I was like Mark Zuckerberg, the next mm. Elon Musk. And I was basically harassing investors, parents of my classmates who had, you know, some, some resources to invest in, in opportunities and just calling them constantly. It was, it was really embarrassing looking back on it. Mm. Um, so I, I was going through these grandiose thoughts where I just thought, you know, I'm the man. And then I still wasn't sleeping this whole period. By day about three and four now, that's when really the psychosis kind of came out. Because I started to have like paranoia thoughts. I thought like the FBI was following me around. I thought people were tapping into my phones, like reading my messages and somehow listening to my thoughts in my own head. It just was really getting weird. I was having like auditory hallucinations. I was kind of like having conversations with myself. Uh, how they describe it in our textbooks is word salad. Yeah. Because like my friends, my friends now could like see something was going on. Yeah. By that point, I imagine exactly. that everything, yeah. even your social life was probably very noticeably different than what yeah. it was before. It wasn't euphoria anymore. No, it was, it was creepy and scary to them, yeah. I'm sure. You know, a lot of my friends would come up to me during that week and they were like, yo, are you on Coke right now or like something else? And, and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. But just for the listeners, like picture that, you know, I was just my mind was working so fast and just going a million miles an hour and no one could follow my conversation. And so everyone was really scared around me and my family and my friends. But thankfully, that Friday was our graduation. I was still able to walk. And I got home safely from uh, Worcester, Mass, back to Litchfield, Connecticut. It was about a two and a half hour drive. But once I got back to Litchfield, Connecticut, my parents brought in, I still don't really know who they are, but it's like mm -hmm. this mental health emergency sort of crisis unit. Mm -hmm. So they came to my house and they kind of convinced me, like, hey, like, can you tell, you know, something's not normal right now? Like, obviously this isn't your typical behavior. They kind of laid out a few options for me. You know, you can, pretend this is normal and just sort of like hope it goes away mm -hmm. which it won't <laughs> um you can make an appointment with a psychiatrist but the the system right now is so impacted we probably can't get you in for like five or six weeks wow you can be on a cancellation list you know but we can't promise anything and then the third option is to get the most immediate care we think we sh you should go to the emergency room and you know stay in the psych ward at the time, I didn't really know that was going to be a five-day psych ward experience. Uh, and, you know, when they told me that, I didn't react as nicely as I'm talking right now, you know. I would imagine. Yeah. I, at this point, you didn't really know that anything was wrong. You just thought, right, that like you were thinking that you're feeling these euphoric feelings and you're kind of paranoid and all that kind of stuff. But was it kind of a shock to have these people just show up at your house or...? 
both. Yeah. I mean, both, <laughs> to be honest, because my uncle had bipolar disorder. Okay. Okay. And so my bunk- uncle, you know, had it his whole life. He was in and out of the psych wards, on and off medication his entire life. And sadly, he eventually committed suicide. Wow. So I always kind of knew that I had this in my genes. Gotcha. Okay. And even in, when I was in Scotland, I thought maybe I could have that, mm. but I just, I didn't want to accept it. Yeah. And so even yeah. on that day, I thought, oh, well, you know, I must have a little bit of David's genes in me, hmm. but I, I didn't want to accept it. And so I remember after I stormed out of that room, cursing out my whole, you know, all my family and stuff, I got a group call from one of my two best friends who I graduated undergrad with. They were like, dude, you, you know, you're starting a job in insurance hmm. two weeks after, you know, this graduation experience, because... I graduated with a degree in economics. I had no idea at that time that I wanted to go to medical school. And so I was working at, uh, or I had a job coming up at Hanover Insurance. And they're like, dude, if you want to keep that job, that good paying job, you know, you just signed the contract, you got a signing bonus, you're going to have your own apartment finally and live a good life, you know, big boy life after mm-hmm. undergrad. Yeah. But they're like, dude, you got to take care of yourself, man. Like, you, you can... Are you, are you really going to argue with us and say that your health is perfect right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so being able to listen to those two best friends, I, I really put a lot of value on that. And I was like, man, dude, I just got to go. So my parents took me to the psych ward. And I remember I even went into, or took me to the emergency room, excuse me. I went to the emergency room receptionist and I was like, I think I'm in a psychotic episode. I think I have bipolar disorder. Thinking that because I had that insight, they would just walk me up in the normal elevator up to the psych ward to the psychiatrist. Like, no, that's mm-hmm. not how it works. Mm-hmm. So there's like this little atrium in the far back of the emergency room where they keep all the uh, psychiatric patients. You know, they don't put you next to the kid who broke his arm at soccer practice or something like that. You're not a typical patient. So that's when, you know, it, everything got real. And, you know, that's when almost like you sober up out of that psychosis, euphoric feeling because the door locks behind you. The first person you see isn't the doctor, but a security guard. And you're just like, oh, whoa. And so they bring you in this little atrium and then they bring you into your own room that has a bed with straps on it for your arms and legs. And I was like, man, like... I do not want to get strapped down. Like, that would suck. That seems like a bad approach. I mean, this might be why you talk about looking for a change in the system and why you got involved in the medical field in general, because it's hard enough to admit that you have a problem and to try to get care for yourself, but then to be faced with that sort of a a scary situation when you're already in probably one of the scarier situations of your life. I can't imagine that that really is uh, is very comforting, and that's probably what you need yeah. in that moment is a bit of comfort or a bit yeah. of. You're greeted with this like kind of Hollywood almost image of what like is a mental hospital kind of a mm-hmm. thing. That's like the scary thing that I would assume is probably the last thing that you want to see because I think at that moment you're probably not thinking I'm a crazy person. I should be strapped down, you know, and that's that's not very welcoming. I think that discourages people. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, in that moment, my mind was still racing a million miles an hour, but I was trying to be like Mr. Cool, like stone face, just because I did not want to get strapped down. Right. And I remember, you know, my family were able to walk with me up into that atrium, but then they they can't go into that room with me. And they just kept me in isolation for, I think it was like maybe four hours. And it felt like an eternity. You know, it was terrible just sitting there. There's not any music playing. You don't have your cell phone. You can't goof off or nothing. You're just chilling. It is boring as hell. Yeah. But 
what I learned once I got up to the psych ward is I had one of the shortest experiences down there. There's people that spend literally days down there or they do have to get strapped down or they do have to get put on tranquilizers or yeah. something just to chill out. Are they just evaluating you during that time or like what's yes. the, okay, gotcha. Yes, and like determining basically if you're a danger to yourself and others. Mm. And so I really had it super, super easy. Um, you know, during the time I thought it was the hardest thing in the world that I've ever dealt with, but once you kind of get through it, you, you can look back and say like, wow, I had it so much easier than other people who literally had to be restrained mm-hmm. or forced into treatment, which I can imagine be so, so hard. Yeah. yeah. So once they get you up on the psych ward, there was like 15 other patients on this psych ward in Torrington, Connecticut. Um, and you know, it was sort of like the typical things that you can sort of imagine in movies in some capacities. You know, some people up there were really going through crisis. You could mm-hmm. hear people screaming um, and just having trouble sleeping. And it, it was just hard. And the psych ward, you know, it's, it's just not that fun. It's yeah. super, super boring. I remember they have these activities kind of throughout the whole day. Like, I, I like I love yoga. Mm-hmm. And the first time I've ever done yoga is in the psych ward, which I think is kind of fun. But, <laughs> you know, so that, that was, they have some sort of little exercise stuff for you. They have group therapy sessions. You do get to finally meet with a psychiatrist and sort of figure out what medication, if you do need medication, is going to work for you. But the thing I really struggled with the most is you're literally locked up. Mm-hmm. You feel mm-hmm. like a damn criminal. Yeah. And I was in there for five days. Some people are in there much, much longer than that. And they don't even let you outside. They bring you into like this sunroom, this kind of like greenhouse almost looking area. Mm-hmm. And it's totally enclosed. And uh, this psych ward was on the top floor of the hospital. And so I get why it's enclosed, you know, like you don't want anybody don't. doing anything stupid. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, you know, you feel like a freaking flower. You're brought out there for like an hour to get your vitamin D and then they bring you back in. Hmm. And I remember just thinking like, dude, I just want to like exercise. Like I want to, they're like, oh, you can do push-ups in your room or something. Like, oh, thanks, bro. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's <laughs> but, appealing. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I just walked the halls for hours in that psych ward, just bored. And just, I remember you can't stop thinking like, how in the hell did I end up here? Like, what mm-hmm. did I do wrong? And in that state of mind, you think that the psych ward is going to be the worst of it all. And you just, I remember kept asking all the nurses and all the doctors, like, when am I getting out? Like, when can I leave? But once you leave the psych ward, that's when it really sucks. Because hmm. I didn't know any other friends of mine who had been to the psych ward. I didn't really know anybody. At that stage of my life, you know, you'd search, like, bipolar disorder on Google and, like, Demi Lovato would pop up. And these right. are the celebrities that I, I can't really relate to. I sort of try, like, Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix, stuff yeah. like that, but I don't know. Yeah. So you leave the psych ward, and keep in mind, I started that insurance gig a week after uh, I got out of the psych <laughs> ward. So it was just kind of like a hectic time of my life. Yeah. And, you know, with mental health medication management they typically don't get it your meds right on the first try or there's like an adjustment period so one kind of funny story of this is you know there's orientation week at this uh hanover insurance company where i'm with all the other new um people who were just hired they're walking us through orientation we're meeting like the ceos and everything of the company was really cool and so one of the side effects of abilify that i was on right then was really like uh, tranquil. You know, you're just going to be feel fatigued all the time. Mm. So at this orientation, all my friends were taking snapshots. There's the CEO and there's me just, you know, like zonked out, <laughs> trying to, to stay awake, but just like, just this medication is powerful. You know, it makes you just yeah. so tired and really sometimes changes your personality. So, 
you know, that first six months out of the hospital, I was really struggling, struggling. I ballooned up again. I was feeling that really similar depression to what I was feeling out in Scotland. I didn't have the same insomnia mm -hmm. that I was dealing with then, but definitely the depression was there. I just had no energy, kind of thought everybody hated me. I was a tool. I was gaining a lot of weight. But this job told me, hey, you're going to get transferred at some point. Uh, to a different location outside Worcester, Mass. We don't know where, but you're moving. Are you cool with that? And uh, that was cool. I, I want to travel. Mm -hmm. So they told me, you know, you're going to be moving to Sacramento, California. Mm. And so I remember my father drove with me on that long trip, that five-day trip out there. And we had, it was one of my favorite drives ever because I got to really know my dad on an intimate level, much more than the 22 years I had already known him before that. Just, just sitting all day, sitting in my Jeep, talking. I remember telling him, like, I can't live this life where I try to be embarrassed or ashamed of my bipolar disorder mm. because the medical professionals told me, okay, listen, you know, you, you need to commit to seeing a therapist, commit to your medication, meditation, uh, exercise, uh, healthy sleep management, really to manage bipolar disorder. This is a serious illness. But at the same time, you know, your job could be in jeopardy, your relationships could be uh, hindered a little bit. People might not want to have you stay in their apartment complex when they find out that you have a mental illness. There's such a strong stigma attached with this. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, yeah, but they might not. Like, I, I don't want to assume that they're going to do this, but oh, no, Logan, you know, we're professionals. You don't, right. you don't know what you're talking about, little 22-year-old Logan. Mm -hmm. And so I remember driving out there with my dad, like, Dad, I can't live this life where I'm ashamed of this. Like, this is, this is just who I am. You know, I was born with this. I believed it was a genetic disease because my uncle had it, and then we found out on my dad's side there was a lot of bipolar disorder on his family as well. Mm -hmm. And so moving out to Sacramento, I didn't know anybody. I was moving in with these guys that I met on Craigslist. So I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to tell these guys like first week I get there. Yeah. If they don't like me, I'm just going to get a new place. Like, it's fine. Like, yeah. I don't know anybody. <laughs> what, what do I got to lose yeah. here? You know, to my surprise, they were like, oh, like, that's fine. You know, uh, like I have this health issue or my mom has cancer or diabetes or whatever it has you. And they encouraged me to seek out other individuals with bipolar disorder. Mm. And that was really like the big turn in my management of my mental illness. Because thankfully, Sacramento was a big metropolis. And so I went on, it took me a, a little bit convincing through my therapist. But, you know, six months after I lived in Sacramento, I went up on uh, meetup.com. And I searched just bipolar support group. And thankfully, there was this group called Balanced. Mm -hmm. And it was just this little kind of informal group. There wasn't any, you know, professionals there. It wasn't sponsored by any official nonprofit or anything. But just a group of people, all with mental illness, that came together every Wednesday night and just talked about it. Mm -hmm. And that was the best thing. Because I was able to meet people who had bipolar disorder for like 10, 20 years, and they were living successful lives. And so I finally had like legitimate role models that I could relate to and I could talk to. And that's when I started to kind of really believe that I could recover from this illness. Because at that point, I was like 270. I was 50 pounds, uh, 50 pounds, like 70 pounds overweight, like just super fat. And, you know, had really low self-esteem. But they encouraged me, you know, to kind of seek out the gym, really start to build your network of support and tell people that you have bipolar disorder. You know, it's, it's not something that you need to be ashamed of. And I'm so thankful that that group existed because I know a lot of people don't have access to a group like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like here in Yakima, I've looked for similar groups and they just, 
they exist a little bit, but you know, this group in Sacramento was really special. We had like 50 people every Wednesday wow. Wow. showing up. Yeah. So you're always meeting new people. You meet people who are really young or people who are like 70 years or year old who are even lawyers or doctors and like highly successful people that lived with this disorder. But one thing I didn't truly still understand at that point is a lot of the people that I met at this meeting lived that philosophy that the men medical professionals told me where you know be really hesitant about who you tell like only tell your most immediate relationships like no one else at work needs to know you know just just mm -hmm. they were everyone was afraid of the discrimination that they could face mm -hmm. and on the other side of the coin you did hear a lot of stories of discrimination where right. you know maybe people would be in a intimate relationship with someone and they would leave them because they had a mental illness so you, i would hear these stories that okay like i get why the medical professionals told me this so i kind of lived that similar philosophy too in some capacity i was telling my friends a little bit more but you know I, at that point i hadn't posted on facebook or anything like that but um really the catalyst was the sandy hook shooting Mm. So, um, hopefully all the listeners, you know, of course, know that it was, but that terrible shooting event at the elementary school in uh, Sandy Hook, Connecticut. And so I grew up like 45 minutes from there, north of there in Connecticut. Mm. And my mom is an elementary art teacher. Wow. So that really, really hit close to home to me. And how all like the news outlets were saying how there's some connection between mental illness and violence and how these people shouldn't be allowed to have guns or these people should be put on a list or... You know, these people are really a danger to society. And I was like, yo, like, that's BS. Like, that is not me. I've never been in a fight in my life. You know, I could never, ever, ever do something like this. You know, I come from a family of teachers. Mm -hmm. This is outrageous. And so that's really when I was like, I got to do something. You yeah. know, I got to try to change this, this perception of mental illness in society. So I, I got on the speaking bureau in Sacramento and I was traveling around and I was giving my speeches to like colleges and police officers and hospitals but I still felt like such a phony because a lot of kids who I went to high school with or uh, undergraduate college with didn't know that this is something that I dealt with mm -hmm. so I was like dude I'm living this phony life like I gotta tell people so you know it, it really kind of came out of anger like I'm telling you and resentment towards uh, you know the backlash that happened after Sandy Hook but I remember I came home after work one day, I put my laptop down and I just recorded what happened. And that's that YouTube video that, you know, you were referring to at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it was really a surreal experience because as soon as I posted it, it blew up mm -hmm. like mini viral. You know, in the first like week, it had like 20,000 views. It got featured on foxnews.com, the health page. And so these people from all over the world were reaching out to me. And, you know, trying to get advice or just thanking me for being so open. It was really, really a wild, wild experience. Mm -hmm. And I, I still don't even know how to put it into words. So from that moment on, I knew I had to do something in mental health. And at that point, I still had no idea medical school was going to be it. So I continued sort of making videos, but I had no idea what I'm doing. Uh, they weren't great videos, you know, usually <laughs> they have like a hundred views. Like this one has 40,000, all the rest have like a hundred, whatever, you can check them out. But, you know, I started to do things, just anything I could do to try to improve the system around me. So I started this mental health fitness group in Sacramento because at that point, 
I started really exercising a lot. I got myself back to like a healthy weight. I weighed about 200 pounds, so I was feeling a lot better. That working out all the time was helping out with my uh, insomnia and anxiety management. And so I just really wanted to try to teach other people around me that this is something that you need to, to add into your mental health management because so often when we see psychiatrists or therapists, people think like, okay, I take this pill, I'm gonna be happy. Mm -hmm. Or I talk to this therapist and I'll feel better immediately after. And you might a little bit, but it's not long term. But if you exercise every day, that can really have such a strong impact mm -hmm. on your mental health management. So I thought, you know, I, I wanted to maybe turn that fitness group into a gym or something at that point. I thought maybe I wanted to start a nonprofit. Maybe I wanted to continue with the videos. But what I realized out of all those things I was doing, what I liked the most was simply just talking to people mm -hmm. about their own experiences and trying to just help them however I could. And one thing I felt so frustrated by about mental health is it's something we can't measure. You know, mm -hmm. we, it's all subjective really at this point. We're trying to make a diagnosis off what people say. And like I mentioned earlier, the medication can be much, sometimes more harmful than the symptoms that the people were dealing with prior. So that's really where I had that desire to go into medicine. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want to try to improve the diagnostic, diagnostic components of this and also the treatment and make it really just less harmful. So at that point, I ended up leaving my insurance career. I went back to community college, taking classes, and then I was working at a mental health hospital and addiction center for a while, really learning all these strong experiences. And it was a fun, fun time. You know, my name started to get known out in Sacramento as being like a mental health advocate. Mm -hmm. I remember one of my favorite speeches I ever did was at uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness Walk in 2013. It was this big fundraiser in Sacramento. And the keynote speaker didn't show up, so they moved me up to be the keynote speaker. It was <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> it, it, it was on my birthday, actually. Oh. My, like, 24th birthday. And the state senator went on, and then he's like, all right, here's Logan Noon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And, uh, but, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But it was, it was one of the most life-changing experiences for me because people loved my story, the same story I'm telling you right now. And so many people came up to me and they're like, you have to just continue whatever you're doing. I don't know what you're even trying to do. Just keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I really think it was all the positive feedback that I received is what encouraged me and gave me the confidence to pursue medicine. So I started taking classes. I applied to medical school really all across the country. And even then, pre-medical advisors said, listen, like telling the medical school admissions committee that you have a mental illness is not something we advise yeah <laughs> you know you're gonna be kind of a red flag right on your application you're really gonna have to have a strong uh mcat score good grades mm -hmm. but i i couldn't abandon my philosophy that was so true to my heart that th these illnesses are no different than diabetes or heart cancer mm -hmm. or, or heart cancer what am i talking about heart disease <laughs> or, or cancer huh. you're the med student i was like yeah heart cancer yeah. that's probably a thing oh god don't tell my professors <laughs> whoa whoa is this graded that's not cool yeah. This part out. Yeah, right? yeah but so i i just couldn't do that though i i had to stay true to my philosophy of not being ashamed of this and so in the first line of my uh admissions essay was sitting anxiously in the office of a psychiatrist's office was not how i envision celebrating my undergraduate uh, ed, uh, graduation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really thankful that Pacific Northwest, 
was receptive to that. Yeah. And they invited me to an interview, and I was just so excited to be here. And, you know, eventually I got that, that call. And like I said, that call where I got in, that feeling is sort of what ish feels like a manic episode. And, but that manic episode obviously goes on for days and has no real substance or rationality behind mm -hmm. it. But just so the listeners can kind of understand what that feels like, you know, your heart's going nuts. You feel like the absolute best person in the world. Uh, so that was really kind of my path to medical school. Hopefully I didn't ramble on a little bit too long here. <laughs> no, no, But I'd all. love to kind of hear your questions. Yeah, it's super interesting to me. First of all, uh, the idea of you being able to get, tr not so quickly, because I know that you were away and you were studying abroad and I know that there was a lot that went in between, but from the time you graduated and started going through that episode to the time that you were checked in and your parents recognized it, what do you, uh, was it because of your uncle's experience? Do you think that your parents were like, there's something going on with Logan or? I'd say so. You know, my mom had lived with trying to support her brother for, you know, really her entire life. So she was very knowledgeable mm. that, you know, both of her children could be potential people that lived with these kind of issues. And so they knew what was going on, but also even my friends who went to undergrad with me, uh, one of them was a psychology major. So I think they were even able to identify that maybe they didn't know it was bipolar disorder, but certainly some aspect of psychosis. Mm -hmm. And so I just think I really got lucky. You know, the environment that I was in, I had a really supportive family, supportive friends. Uh, I was able to see good doctors. And so many people who deal with mental health issues don't have that same structure of support. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel so thankful and lucky that that is something that I was born with. Well, and that's probably another reason that the conversation should be had more because those people who don't have those networks of, uh, you know, people around them who can surround them and really support them. Um, and they feel like they have nobody to talk to and it's such a stigma to even bring it up at all. Um, I feel like it can be really isolating and harmful. And, you know, we had the, you talked about Sandy Hook and not every mental health patient ends up that way for sure. But I think that people, when they get very isolated and desperate, you know, it can escalate to those kinds of dangerous situations. And that's why we should have conversations about it. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, it's interesting to me too, talking about um, the idea of doctors telling you that you probably shouldn't share. Because when you first hear it, you jump to the conclusion that that's the worst advice ever. But it really does make sense. Um, in the sense that anytime you hear about mental illness, it's and some fear-based approach to it, right. whether it's a, a school shooting or just some terrible tragedy. And that's when the idea is brought up. We did an episode a while back um, following the Vegas shooting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we kind of used it as a trick to talk about mental illness because everybody on the news, that was the one time where they're saying, we have to do something about the mentally ill people in our country. And those are the only times that it's brought up. So mm -hmm. if, if a person's perception of somebody with a mental illness is a person who shoots a lot of people or does some terrible thing and you tell them that I have the mental illness that your one recognition of is the guy who shot however many people in Las Vegas yeah. or did the Sandy Hook shooting, I could see how you'd be completely ostracized. And why would you want to build that giant obstacle for yourself before you can start breaking down your own little walls, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But I wonder where the, the balance is there between, is it just stopping that conversation that goes on so commonly about uh, the only time mental illness being brought up is in some terrible tragedy, or is it opening the conversation more the way that you are, where it's most of the people who are mentally ill are not committing the crimes that are being portrayed on TV and labeled with those all these little diagnoses that... Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You know? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest, because, you know, I get a little frustrated sometimes. Other advocates, you know, we, we try to say, you know, mentally ill people aren't violent. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't say that either. You know, there's obviously a percentage. It might be very, very, very small, but it does happen. You know, these school shootings or any sort of shootings or whatever may have you, a lot of times these people do deal with mental health issues. You know, we can't ignore that fact of reality. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of other people out there that have never committed any violent aspects or really done anything remotely like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, we have to be cognizant that we do have to have that conversation of, you know, we have to somehow address eliminating this sort of violence, but that can't be the only conversation because that's going to impede so many other people from seeking out mental health care. Mm -hmm. And so I think I try to really, I haven't talked obviously too much about the, the, violent sort of side of it Mm -hmm. but that's really what motivates me i want to be one of those other stories that shows people a positive side of mental illness Mm -hmm. and that's also what motivated me to start my own podcast is where now other people are coming on and sharing their own mental health stories and kind of just shining other aspects of uh recovery Mm -hmm. that um and hopefully can motivate people to seek out care that they need yeah i think that's fantastic because i think it's important that we have those conversations, like you said, but I think every conversation doesn't need to be focused on that. So I think a lot of times we see the media, they're saying, well, we need to talk about this more. But even if they talk about it more, it's still under that same sort of uh, category of the violent, mentally Mm -hmm. ill kind of thing. And there's never the conversation of like, well, what is mental health? You know, like what, and just kind of general conversation. So it becomes the general knowledge for the public and there's not this weird stigma of like this is what mental health looks like and it's dangerous yeah and and then it gets political so quick yeah yeah and then it's like you know are we talking about mental health here are we talking about gun control and just republicans and democrats will just go at it and then we lose what we're supposed to really be talking about exactly and just improving mental health care mm-hmm. and so yeah it's just it really is ridiculous <laughs> it, it makes me you know motivate to come here today though and do things that can help yeah, yeah. with the the stigma it's undeniable that it exists when you came out and you're so open with it and talking about it have you faced that uh the kind of fear-based approach of anybody and your experiences of people been like oh stay away from logan because he has definitely yeah. i mean it very infrequently though so when, I'll tell these stories, certainly, but this is like, you know, maybe one or two percent of the time. The vast, vast, vast majority of people that have reacted when I told the stories are, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, I deal with anxiety. I deal with depression. My mom lives with schizophrenia or whatever. But, you know, certainly I face some of this discrimination mm-hmm. that I try to fight. I remember I told a coworker uh, when I was still working in uh, finance and insurance, and she congratulated me on not being violent. And I was like, uh, uh. thanks. <laughs> Is that a compliment? You know, yeah. So yeah. I, I wasn't really sure. And then there's a lot of other people who, you know, have no medical background, certification or knowledge who will openly tell you, don't take your beds, man. It's just going to turn you into a zombie or, or that, mm-hmm. that doesn't work. You know, yeah. that's a waste of your time. And... So, so that's kind of hard. And so taking medication every single day is hard enough, but then to t- have friends of yours tell you like, oh, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't hear them saying that to a diabetic, like, dude, don't take your insulin. Yeah. yeah. And then the other last component is, uh, you know, thankfully now I'm a happily married man. And when I met my, at the time, oh, well, she wasn't my girlfriend. When I first met her, I did tell her that first day that I had bipolar disorder and I, and I wanted to, 
you know, work in this system in some capacity. And even then I didn't know I wanted to go to medical mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. I just knew I wanted to help. But prior to meeting her, I had that same sort of philosophy of, hey, whatever, I'm just going to tell, you know, these women that I'm trying to date. Yeah, that backfired fairly fast. <laughs> you know, so you're on Tinder swiping yeah. right, you go out to have drinks, uh, coffee, whatever, and yeah, that girl doesn't call you back. And so, you know, there yeah. where it's like, oh, my ex had bipolar disorder. You know, there's no coming back from that. Like, yeah. like she, she's, not, she's not taking you seriously after that. But, you know, I like to think of it, it's a weeding out process too. It cut out all the lame girls yeah. and got me, the, you know, the woman of my dreams. Yeah. Right. And so I... I, people need to be aware when they do tell their stories of mental health, of course, expect there is going to be a little bit of negativity that you will face. But the vast, vast, vast majority of what you will face is positivity and people being able to relate with you. Mm-hmm. And so many people have come up to me even before medical school, but even here, and they just know that I'm here to listen and that I can relate to them because I've dealt with elements of anxiety and depression and you know maybe I can help them in some capacity. And what's been really fun on my mental health, uh, the Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon podcast that I've mm-hmm. done, is most of the people that I've talked to, they're like, well, you know what, you're one of the first people that I've ever told that wasn't one of those immediate relationships like my parents or my best friends about issues that I've gone on. And it it really feels good to just be open about this and, and you know, be public about it. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's true for most things. Like even aside from mental health, when we start feeling like we have to keep a secret, I think it's just a really unhealthy place to be. So the more we can talk about just our every aspect of ourselves, I feel like mental health shouldn't be any exception to that rule. We should be able to be open about who we are and not fear rejection because of that. Mm-hmm. It was interesting the timing of this conversation too, and the, the the way that we were trying to schedule it. Um, I have a friend from back home. For people who are listening and probably don't know my backstory, I'm from Massachusetts, so mm-hmm. two Massachusetts Hoorah, guys in the Yakima area. Yeah, um, and I'll just say I'll just refer to him as a friend mm-hmm. uh, to not get too personal. But we had had a phone conversation not too long ago, and in being so distant from home, obviously the relationships become distant. Uh, but this friend had become distant anyway and had kind of moved away from everybody. And he had gone through an episode a while ago where everybody recognized that something was wrong. But um, his family was kind of against seemingly admitting that something was wrong and kind of afraid of the diagnosis. And there was I never heard of a diagnosis from him. Um, and that was 10 years ago, probably. And it wasn't until a few weeks ago in a phone conversation that I had with him where he told me that I was the first person that he told that. A few weeks before he'd been uh, actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder and he still hadn't told anybody and he didn't want to tell anybody. And I think it was that same approach that he probably got the same advice of don't share this with people because it's it's scary to a lot of people. And he was talking about trying to get into a relationship with a girl or trying to branch out and make new friends. And the idea that not only is he afraid to tell people that he has the the diagnosis because of the being ostracized and pushed away, but he said one of the hardest things for him is the idea that when he's gone through his episodes, he doesn't recognize himself being different. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so he said that he lo- he kind of he puts himself away from people and isolates himself because he's afraid that if he's communicating with somebody and he's going through some sort of an episode they're going to see him as crazy and he's going to be coming across as crazy, like those embarrassing things that you yeah. did at the time. And he's not going to recognize it at all. And he doesn't know how to approach that. And I imagine there's so many people that are dealing with those same struggles that leads to the isolation and really deeper and darker depression than you're already facing. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I really try to motivate people to tell, you know, there's at least immediate family and friends and, you know, if they choose to be public or not, but at least tell them, your immediate friends, what you're going through. Because I totally relate to what your friend is saying because there's a lot of times, there's manic episodes, but then there's also below that like hypomanic episodes, mini manic episodes, I call mm-hmm. them. And those are really hard to recognize. And I, I still, to this day, I've lived with this for seven years, sometimes can't recognize those symptoms. But because I've educated my wife so much on this and also you know, my family and my friends now, of course, obviously know, I want them to know so they can help me identify, hey, uh, you're acting a little bit weird, man. Like, you mm-hmm. wanna go exercise, meditate, go call your doctor maybe, your therapist? Because I know I need that structure in my life because I really don't think I'm capable of recognizing these sort of things. Mm-hmm. And I like to say the worst way to deal with a mental health issue is in isolation. It's like a community. Yeah. And, you know, one thing you said about your friend at the beginning about sort of this, the medical professionals warning us about the discrimination, I sort of think it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. You know, if a doctor tells you, like, you know, people are going to treat you differently or, you know, you, you... it just automatically makes you like ashamed of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And trying to live with something that you're ashamed of, it's I think it's impossible to be happy. Yeah. yeah. And so that is something I never want to say as a physician. And it's mm-hmm. exhausting, yeah. I'm sure too, because you feel like you have to hide this huge part of you from everybody. And that can't be, you know, that probably doesn't help with your restlessness and, you know, yeah. all the different things that might happen from the mental health issue that you're struggling with. Yeah. So. yeah. If somebody tells you that you're the ugliest person in the town, you're probably going to walk around self-conscious all the time, right. you know, no matter what you look like. It's just, yeah. it's just stupid. And, yeah. So I'm, I really, what I want to say, you know, I definitely want to be a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And so when I have that same 22 year old, maybe male who just had a, his first manic episode, what I want to say is I, I really like exercising and weightlifting. And so you know, how we feel sadness and happiness, anxiety, whatever, you know, it's not like this fairy sprinkling happy dust in our brain. It's some sort of synapses or mm-hmm. uh, neurotransmitters, and we obviously don't fully understand this at all. But something, you know, when we feel sad for an extended period of time, obviously isn't wired correctly. Mm-hmm. But I, I try to make the analogy to everyone I talk to about weightlifting. You know, when you go through weights, when you push that weight, you're ripping that muscle. Mm-hmm. But what happens is when you rest and if you eat properly, that muscle is going to grow back stronger. So I try to say, so will your brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, once you treat this, you're going to obviously rip some things, damage some things. But if you get your proper rest, if you're seeking proper care and really taking care of your body, you're going to grow back stronger. You're going to be more appreciative of those happy times. You're going to be able to manage yourself so you can remain happy and ambitious much longer than you did when you were ignoring this. Mm -hmm. The idea of uh, medication was another one that I wanted to talk to you about too, because even in just hearing about uh, antidepressants and you always hear that the zombie effect of them. And there's, like you said, people who are completely inexperienced saying you shouldn't take those because it's not only going to turn you into a zombie or somebody, but it's going to change you. It's going to take away your personality. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to talk about, you talk about the euphoric side of the bipolar disorder and going through those times where you feel like the best person in the world and then dealing with the side effects of medication. Are there times when you're taking the medication, especially early on where you're thinking to yourself, I'm better off without this because I, I was, I was great before I was creating the new websites and I was had all these ideas and now I'm just gaining weight and I'm depressed and I feel isolated and 
Well, I mean, to be frank, like I'm doing well today and I still don't like taking my meds. Mm. It's, it's something that I deal with and I, you know, essentially force myself to do because I know it's a good idea, but I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And I just try to say, you know, I don't really like flossing either. <laughs> you know, I have contacts in right now. That wasn't exactly a pleasant experience taking them in and out. But it's just something that I have to do to take care of myself. But, you know, especially at the beginning when prior to being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I had never had to take any sort of chronic medication. Mm-hmm. And so it was really hard. And But just how I kind of convinced myself is really through, I got lucky once again, like I keep saying, with the relationships that I had. One of my best friends in the world has uh, type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. So he's had to use insulin his entire life. And talking with him, we just kept making analogies. Like, why is your bipolar disorder any different than my diabetes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is just something that you're going to have to deal with every single day. But then on the other side, too, my uncle... You know, I, a big part of why I took this so seriously was from the beginning is because I wanted to avoid the same fate as my uncle. Mm-hmm. I saw the pain that that caused my mother, my grandmother, and really my entire family. And I knew I, I never wanted to get to that point. And a big thing that my uncle struggled with was he was on and off medication for so many years. When I went to that balance group in Sacramento, what I always heard is how people would go on and off the meds and that's when they would really struggle. Mm-hmm. Because... I've been on now uh, Depakote since, geez, six years now. Mm-hmm. And there's always that piece of your brain like, do I still need this? Like, what would it be like if I didn't take this anymore? Like, mm-hmm. would I be fine? And, you know, the answer probably I, I might be for like a month or mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. But then I've met so many people that have had that crash or that second manic episode that's even worse typically than the, than the initial one. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is still a struggle. You know, I, I don't like taking medication. I hope I don't have to take medication for the rest of my life. But right now, you know, we just don't understand that much with psychiatric care, mm-hmm. at least in my opinion. And so I just, I, I, I'm literally scared to go off medication because I just don't want to end up back in that psych ward. You know, I've been able to be so successful and driven over the past few years to get me to medical school and I just passed first year thankfully Mm -hmm. so I want to just keep going but it's definitely a struggle and I don't think it's ever going to stop yeah in researching this episode uh not only through conversation with Sim, but I was trying to to get some background and some other insights from people who have the disorder and one of the articles that I read um actually kind of related to the idea of when it's portrayed in the media when people speak about it and oddly enough, the timing of this worked out really well, especially with our first cancellation, mm-hmm. um, because Kanye West just released yeah. an album, and he has the word bipolar right on the cover, and he oh, yeah. speaks about the theme of it a lot, and it's the first time that he's admitted that he was diagnosed, and uh, he refers to it in one of the songs as his superpower instead of a disorder or a disability, and the person who was writing the article kind of explained it that way too, where especially that euphoric side and those manic episodes and coming back from them and eventually getting proper medication and a diagnosis and treatment, they can see it as a superpower because it gives them a different understanding of the extremes of a human emotion and the way that you can connect with yourself and other people. Do you see that in yourself? And then how does that affect you going forward as a a physician? Definitely. I mean, I remember a pivotal conversation I had with my mother who she was so ashamed. She's like, you know, I feel like you got this from my brother. You know, I, I feel that this is you know, my fault. 
And I was like, yeah, but you're only looking at this as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there are good aspects of bipolar disorder. There's I have an excess amount of energy. I do have these grandiose ideas that sometimes are obviously irrational. Sometimes they cause me to harass people with money, of course. That was only one time. <laughs> but, you know, they also, they let me dream. You know, it was that same kind of grandiose idea and thinking that I was like, wow, you know, why, why can't I be a doctor? Why not me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think it helps with my creativity, my energy level. Um, and so there definitely are positive aspects. Uh, there's a lot of people that say that exact same thing. Like, this is my superpower. You know, it might be able to knock me down, but it's also going to allow me to do so many great things that people who maybe don't have bipolar disorder, they just don't have that same amount of energy. They don't know what that feeling of mania really feels like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is some uh, some truth to the idea that it can it can work as a not necessarily an inspiration, but in tapping into a whole different side of ideas and creativity and then there's a strength in that or I'm kind of referring again to the the Kanye West album because it's so interesting to hear a public figure you you said Demi Lovato and Mm -hmm. there's people like that who have talked about it but they always talk about it as a disorder and getting treatment and kind of battling with it yeah and I think it's the first time that I've ever heard anybody approach it in a way that is completely on the opposite side of the spectrum where he's talking about obviously being a problem and a lot of the album is really dark and stuff, but Mm -hmm. it seems that he takes a lot of strength from those manic times that he's experienced and those unrelatable experiences to so many other people. Yeah. Well, I think it's really therapeutic too, to be creative and whether it's through art, uh, you know, music, but now even for me, like through that YouTube that I did years ago, but even now through my podcast now, like I need to have those creative juices to as a means of therapy for me. And even public speaking is, I always say it's like my f- favorite means of therapy. Uh, just being able to be creative, express myself in other ways than I typically do. And I, I definitely, I think a lot of people with bipolar disorder can relate to that. But even if you don't have bipolar disorder, I think trying to use that creativity and that artistic realm within yourself mm-hmm. to you know, express maybe what that feels like to be depressed or anxious all the time. And so I, I totally relate. I think a lot of people dealing with mental illness can kind of use artistic means to show the world what they're going through. Yeah. What do you, in having dealt with it yourself, what do you understand about it? Or what could you tell people about it that a lot of other people probably don't understand, especially people who haven't experienced it? About mania or about... Just the mania or bipolar disorder or mental illness as a whole. I imagine that there's so much more insight when you've had the experience and you come back and you recognize that you're not broken, but there's it's like a sickness. Like you said, it's like yeah. diabetes or cancer or anything else. And I think that it's looked at so much differently by most of society that... Yeah. Having the, the firsthand experience with it, and especially in working to become a physician, how do you think that that's going to affect you going forward and even your patients? Well, what I really try to say is, you know, I, I of course, identify as having bipolar disorder, but I don't really like the labels of all of this. And the way psychiatry is right now, you know, a patient can see psychiatrist A and be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, psychiatrist B, schizophrenia disorder, and there's just a lot of subjectivity around this. Mm -hmm. And we don't understand really how to measure this, how to objectively identify what's going on. So what I say all the time is, 
you know, aspects of what I've went through, you know what that feels like. Like everyone knows like what a manic kind of feeling can feel like. Maybe they haven't had it for five days to a psychotic uh, level like I did, but everyone can identify with mania. Everyone can identify with being anxious or depressed. I really like to say we all have mental health issues. You know, it's not just people that have been officially diagnosed mm -hmm. with a mental illness and like put a label on it. I don't like that. I really think every single person needs to identify that they need to manage their mental health. I think mm -hmm. everyone should go see a therapist at some point in their I life agree. or meditate or yeah, whatever it have you because so often we ignore what's going on in the mental health capacity mm -hmm. and now even kind of bringing it back to medicine i think even the structure of our curriculum sort of ignores mental health to mm -hmm. be honest you know one in four people deal with a mental health issue throughout their life and mm -hmm. so coming into uh medical school i you know when i was being interviewed mm -hmm. we produce a lot of primary care doctors and mm -hmm. i really thought i want to be a primary care doctor because instead of what I did and you know going to see a psych or going to see the emergency ward and that was the first time I had any sort of mental health care ideally it should be with your primary care doctor mm -hmm. you know and that should be the first conversation that you have about mental health so I remember we had a residency fair on campus and I went up to all these primary care residency programs and I'm like okay cool like I love mental health tell me about your mental health curriculum you know and so typical primary care residencies are three years all right and so they said, okay, yeah, it's a uh, mental health uh, training is four weeks out of your uh, residency. And I was like, okay, you know, four weeks a year, that's not ideal. And they were like, oh no, four weeks over that three year period. Oh my gosh. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like yeah. one out of four patients deal with this. And like, you're supposed to be the first person that they talk to, not the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist right. is supposed to deal with the extremes, right. the, the worst cases. And so, of course, I know saying this, that if I did become a primary care doctor, I could get additional training. I still could become an expert in this. But it, to me, it seems like even the medical health system is ignoring mm -hmm. the significance of uh, mental health and, and the big need that we need to put on this. So I really hope that's some of my ambitions moving forward is I want to become a psychiatrist, but also train primary care doctors to be more able to you know, properly talk to their patients about these sort of issues. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. crazy that um, you mentioned, you know, that we only spend, like, you even just the example of the residency. Sorry, I'm, like, stumbling over all my words. But <laughs> the example of the residency only spending four weeks on um, me mental health. But I think even as a society, um, we don't ever think about, like, we think about exercising. We think about eating healthy. We think about doing all these things to take care of our body. And our mind is a huge part. It is who we are, you know? Like, that's what that makes up our thoughts and our really determines our actions and all that kind of stuff. And yet there's such a, uh, again, a stigma about taking care of yourself. I remember I saw a therapist, um, you know, a few years back, and I would like to go see one again. But even telling people that, they kind of go, oh, what's wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's nothing. I'm just trying to keep myself healthy. I'm trying to help regulate my emotions. I'm trying, you know, and, and it helps to have, you know, I could go on and on about how important therapists yeah. are because I think it's really helped me a ton with just processing and becoming more self-aware and like learning why I react the way that I do to certain things. And it's just crazy to me that we see all these other health things as like such a big deal. But we, one of the biggest things is our brains and we're like, yeah, well, yeah, but you only need to do that if you really got issues or something yeah. like that. And I think mental health is huge. Yeah. Well, and in our culture, it seems like, oh, you had a tough day at work. Right. Uh, go have a beer. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like immediately we move towards like essentially medicating ourselves yeah. for our emotions. Yeah. And yet, but we don't say, 
oh, you had a tough day, you've had a tough few months at work, like, who tells you to really go see a therapist? I've never had really right. bad experience, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy because I think... I mean, maybe that's another one of the superpowers of having the bipolar disorder is that, um, you know, you're probably a lot more self-aware than many people in society of what you're feeling and why you're feeling it and that kind of thing, because you've been able to go to a therapist and, mm -hmm. um, you know, really process why it is you do the things that you do. And most people, like you said, um, don't have that and they don't, they don't practice that kind of thing. And so they medicate with the wrong things and, mm -hmm. um, that in itself turns into a disorder at times. So, yeah. yeah. Another question I had for you. Um, so when that friend had gone through his manic episode, I was really close to him and I had no idea how to approach it. I knew that something was wrong because he wasn't himself at all. And he was doing the whole word salad thing and mm -hmm. had these grandiose ideas that I couldn't follow. And he was really reckless and mm -hmm. I didn't know what to say to him and I didn't, I had no idea how to approach it. Do you have any advice for anybody? It seems like your family had a, a really good approach to just getting some sort of a, I don't know, you, like you said, you don't know what the team was, but having yeah. a group there who was able to say there's something and these are your options. What would you advise somebody to do if somebody around them is acting erratically and they think that there's something wrong as far as a mental illness goes? Yeah. Well, I mean, I like to say, we've said, you know, the word mental health how many times throughout this podcast, <laughs> but I like to, I don't even like that word or that phrase, excuse me. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's just health. Mm -hmm. Like, why is your brain, your emotions any different than your heart? You know, if you were having mm -hmm. trouble breathing, you, you would not be sitting here talking to me. You would seek care and not even think about it for two seconds. Mm -hmm. So I just think trying to make analogies so much to why is that particular organ any different than any other organ in your body? And so why are you treating your medical care differently than any other organ in your body? Mm -hmm. And because in a psychotic state of mind, you know, if you're trying to have a really in-depth emotional conversation, it's extremely difficult. You know, mm -hmm. I, I was having trouble even following other people's conversations because my mind was racing so much and I had other thoughts. So talking to someone who's in a psychotic state of mind, you know, you're not don't expect that you're going to get through with them. You're not going to be able to suddenly say something pivotal and just have them like snap out of it. Mm -hmm. That's just mm -hmm. not how it works. Mm -hmm. So I just say like, keep it simple. Like keep making analogies to other sort of disorders that you feel comfortable talking about. We mentioned diabetes. I think that's a real easy one or, or really anything like constipation, mm -hmm. whatever. Like it doesn't matter. Just make that same analogy to the other organs and just say you wouldn't treat that other organ and be ashamed to go see a doctor about it. You would just go. Mm -hmm. So please use that same philosophy now. Yeah. My fear in those situations was he, there was no even piece of him that thought that anything was wrong, mm. obviously, because he, like he says now, he doesn't recognize it in himself when something is wrong. So I couldn't figure out how to approach saying, like even bringing up the idea that everything wasn't perfect and he hadn't discovered this brilliant idea, you know? Yeah. Never mind saying, hey, I think that there's something wrong and you should you need to slow down and like get some help or consider your own health. You know, it just mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do it. And I can I can imagine that it's so much worse for people. Thankfully, he had a, a decent support system enough to eventually get some help. But I feel like a lot of people don't. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for people who don't have a support system like you had or like he had and are kind of on their own, maybe not recognizing that something is wrong, but clearly aren't the same person that they were before because of whatever the, the struggle yeah. that they're facing is. Yeah, well, certainly. But I think I also, at least in our culture, that the conversation is changing. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at the NBA, like how many NBA players like Kevin Love 
and all those other players have come out about their anxiety or depression. So at least if someone doesn't have those people in their life that can be so pivotal and important to their care, maybe then they can look at uh, society as a whole and maybe a celebrity, maybe a sports star that, that they, they can relate to and just see that those people go through issues too. And, you know, there certainly is no easy answer here. It's, it's extremely hard. And I, I want, I'm going to spend the rest of my life, more the rest of my career really doing this is how can we reach those people that didn't have the same resources that I had? And because I, I really attribute so much of my success to the environment that I was in. You know, this isn't purely a medical management of my mental health care. It was absolutely a social component too. Thanks again for tuning into The Scientific Method. To be the first to hear upcoming episodes, including our conversations with the nation's leading healthcare experts on topics such as opioids in America, healthcare reform, corporate funded research, and more, subscribe now.